2: This is
3: Bloomberg Business of Sports. COVID has been so devastating. And to see 38,000 people at Fenway Park, it was really emotional and rewarding. On the business side, from ticket sales to jersey sales, the revenues were up, everything was really good. It was really a really solid year. I realized that at the beginning of 2019 it would be a very unique opportunity in terms of a lot of contracts being up same time and a lot of exciting young wrestlers being available to go out and start a wrestling company
1: the country is finally deeply getting the
3: memo about how amazing this sport is i think the sky's the limit for mls bloomberg business
2: of sports from bloomberg radio this is the bloomberg business of sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports i'm michael Barr. And I'm Mike Lynch. Coming up today, action-packed. We'll be covering the Major League Baseball lockout. Earlier this week, Major League Baseball's collective bargaining agreement expired, and we're going to break the situation down with MLB network analyst and insider John Morosi and sports lawyer Martin Edel. But first, let's look at some of the other top stories of the week, beginning with, of course, the MLB lockout. Lynch, I don't get some people said man how could you not see this coming <laughs> I, and my answer is because i didn't think the league would want to do something like this after you just came off of covid
4: i agree it's something we've been talking about since uh since covid was started and they played a 60 game schedule in 2020 and well this day will never come. It's a day your sort of fear will we'll, we'll never arrive something will be resolved or there'll be uh, an extension of the talks but it just didn't happen and um, I I, yeah, I go back to in 1981 I, I pulled out an old Sports Illustrated and the headline was the walkout the owners provoked and I wonder what the headline would be on this uh, work stoppage right here would it be blaming the owners again or it would be the players?
2: Take it fast forward to 1994 as many people have talked about and- uh, I hate to say it, but there—if you're 27 and younger—you don't remember what happened during that work stoppage. No World Series. It—it it was a disaster.
4: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was an empty feeling because baseball. I know the enormous popularity of football, but baseball has always been. America's game. And the World Series is as Americana as you can get. And to not have a World Series really just ripped the gut out of a lot of people in this country.
2: Another topic that's in the news. The Women's Tennis Tour says it will not stage tournaments in China, including Hong Kong, over the treatment of tennis star Ping Shua. Uh She's pretty much disappeared, Lynchy, from public life after she accused a top Communist Party leader of sexual assault.
4: You know, China doesn't take very well to threats, as we know, um, when Enos Cantor, who now has changed his last name to Enos Cantor Freedom, uh, criticized uh, human rights in China. They pulled all the Celtics games from their streaming services. And uh, I, I, I think this will have no effect on, on the, the, the party and the and the rulers in China.
2: Well, what scares me about this is that here you saw her the last time we saw her in public. Uh, was in a video last month a video conference with the international olympic committee and the way she was talking everything's fine don't worry about it thank you all for checking on me and peace and love and see you later that scares me even more because nobody else has been able to get a hold of her
4: yeah it seems like a propaganda campaign uh coming out of china right now and that I, I feel bad for her. I feel for her safety. And it's a great, uh, strong move by, by the WTA, out of China and out of Hong Kong as well.
2: Let's get to, uh, let's call it the Coach's Roulette Show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this this has been one of the wildest, silly seasons for coaches moving about in college football that I've seen in a long time. Notre Dame's Brian Kelly. He was hired by Louisiana State University, no longer with Notre Dame. He got a 10-year contract, reportedly worth $100 million. Now, when we last checked with Kelly, and he was the coach of the Fighting Irish, he said something to the effect of, Well, unless the fairy godmother comes with $250 million, I'm here for the Fighting Irish. Well, I guess that Juan waved because now he's with LSU, Lenji.
4: Yeah, and he's the first Notre Dame coach to ever leave Notre Dame for another job. Now, his coaches have left and then eventually have taken another job or we're dismissed by Notre Dame but to voluntarily leave and take another job it's shocking. Notre Dame uh, has always been a destination and a final destination for head coaches throughout the throughout the years I mean you all the way back to Newton Rockney. so he's gone there and Lincoln Riley you know who <laughs> does wonders at Oklahoma he bolts for Southern Cal so this this is what the strangest offseason I've ever seen for coaches and I feel bad for the players they left behind—that's number one. It happens all the time. But the recruits that were promised uh, that the, the the coach would be there, come play for Oklahoma, come play for Notre Dame, and you know now what do you do? You're 17, 18 years old. It's a confusing time in your life. Enough of a confusing time, and and this sort of muddles things a little bit more. Now, according to the
2: chatter, the rumor mill, Lincoln Riley, when he was hired by USC, he got the 110 million dollars. Also, Riley had two homes in Oklahoma, and he's going to get a $500,000 each home bonus above the asking price, and then, according to the rumor mill, he's going to get a $6 million home provided by USC, and then he's going to get the private jet so he and his family can use it 24-7. I, I think we get free food here at Bloomberg, but uh, that's about it. I, we don't get any free planes, Lynchie.
4: You know, it's like all these these fiction movies that you see on television about you know Texas State and uh, Big State University and all the things that they're doing wrong. It's like this is it's it's reality now, and it's uh, it used to be behind the scenes. Now it's front and center. I mean, this is really just for those people who are cynical about college athletics. Uh, this is not
2: not a good look. Obviously, Major League Baseball and the work stoppage is the big topic, and we're talking with MLB Network Insider John Morosi. John, my goodness, I guess you are a very busy man right now. Thank you for joining us.
3: Michael and Mike, uh, always a pleasure to speak with you both, uh, even though, as you point out, today is uh, perhaps not the happiest day that we have seen in recent uh, baseball history, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm still optimistic that we'll see the game back on the field here this spring.
2: Well, I I guess my first question is, how in the world did we get to this point in the first place?
3: Well, that's an excellent question, because obviously we've seen nearly $2 billion spent as an industry on players in the last month, which uh, one could interpret, uh, I think, correctly as being evidence of of pretty strong health overall in the game. But there has been, uh, I think for a number of years now, some discontent among the players regarding – free agency and, and the way that players have been paid at different points in their career. And really now their, their issues are and their proposals have been to allow salary arbitration at an earlier age, so after two years of service time as opposed to three, and then free agency after five years of service instead of six. These are fairly dramatic changes in the, uh, in the overall business of baseball. And, and Commissioner Rob Manfred said Thursday, that especially as it relates to earlier free agency, it, it really does change the competitive nature for teams when you consider smaller market teams who are unable, uh, in many cases, to afford superstar players as they get older. One could use the Cleveland Guardians as an example uh, that, that exacerbates that issue and, and forces teams to make that decision even earlier. So, uh, it really there are a lot of key economic issues out there on the on the bargaining table, but it really did not appear. Michael and Mike, that the sides got close at all this week. There were proposals made by MLB, but there was not uh, any progress meaningfully made, and so now we're in baseball's first work stoppage in a quarter century.
2: Well, John, you brought up MLB Commissioner Rob Menfred and what he had to say about this work stoppage. Let's listen to what he had to say. Delaying
4: um, the lockout once the contract expires gets complicated legally, and frankly, from our perspective, we wanted to move the process now because we want an agreement now for our fans. Commissioner Manfred said that uh, they made the mistake in 1994 of starting the season without a collective bargaining agreement, and we will not make that mistake again. It sounds like the ownership is, is digging in their heels. There's no chance that they'll play uh, pending a, a, an agreement.
3: Correct, Mike. I, I think you're exactly right there. The only way this season begins on time as if there is a new CBA that that includes uh fully really fully and comprehensively dealt with th- these questions that are at the forefront of, of everybody's mind that they are not going to simply have a renewal of the current CBA and, and go into a season without one uh because that would set up the possibility for a strike and uh, and the commissioner says under no circumstances can baseball countenance that sort of issue. So I, I I do think, and one of the key things the commissioner said at the close of his remarks, was that he is disappointed but not frustrated. Yeah. And I think that was a very important distinction. He Certainly, as he said, MLB officials came here to make a deal, um, speaking, of course, here from the ballpark and in Arlington. Uh, they came here to make a deal and did not. So on that level, it was disappointing. But they are not frustrated because they understand that the lockout is, as they're describing it, a defensive mechanism to bring about the conversations in the coming months that will be necessary for there to be a new CBA. And uh, I, I think there is still a lot of optimism around the game that we will see uh, the game back on the field by February or perhaps March at the latest, and that we're not going to see any any regular season games lost. It's important to point out we're still – fully four months away from the start of the regular season that is an eternity in the world of collective bargaining and and the commissioner said that he he believes that they did glean some new information new insights on what the players are looking for i I do think that one of the more remarkable things that were that was proposed actually I'll, i'll point out two things Number one, the removal of draft pick compensation for free agency, which is a huge impediment, or at least has been here in recent years, uh, to, to team spending. That is a, a significant issue, as the commissioner said. That, in fact, was the grounding of a of a strike, the grounds of a strike back in 1985. So for the players to not have to worry about their value being affected by being tied to a draft pick is a very, very significant issue and one that I think will actually help, uh, hopefully, a deal get made. The other part is a minimum payroll, uh, a salary floor, if you will. So not a salary cap, but a salary floor, a minimum uh, buy-in, if you will, from the the standpoint of of teams. That is a very significant, I think, development here because uh, a lot of the issues that we see from a team, for example, like the Cleveland Guardians, whom I mentioned – not being able to spend uh, or not being able to compete, rather with their current payroll, you now have no choice. You have to spend a hundred million dollars a year if if that proposal is accepted, which I think would uh, allow more of the hometown players to remain with their current teams as opposed to being traded away a year or two before they become free agents.
2: Well, I'm disappointed and frustrated, and I have to tell you why because and we've had this debate in the newsroom, and I know there have been many sides to this, that, well, you saw this coming. Well, no, I didn't because of two things. One, we just had the ultimate work stoppage from the heavenly skies. You want a work stoppage? Fine. Here's COVID. We're going to stop the whole blasted thing. So you, to me, you would think that Now that we finally got a whole season in and it looks like we're on the back end, let's hope of COVID that we're, we're going to progress and build some momentum. And this brings the whole thing to a stop.
3: Well, you're correct in that. We've already lost, as, as you point out, half of the 2020 season for circumstances that were beyond anyone's control. And, and that, that was a, a big loss for the game to not have certainly did not have games at that point in time. And, and that's lost wages for players. And now you look at uh, they were able to have a 2021 season, but notably revenues did not get back to where they were pre pandemic because for significant portions of the season, a lot of ballparks were not at full capacity. And so this really has to be a time where you build on the success of at least being able to complete the 2021 season and have a World Series and have fans in the stands for that play, playoff run. This is an important building time to continue the momentum. There are so many bright young stars in the game. We just saw all the new excitement in places like Texas and Miami and Detroit in the last couple of weeks with significant signings. And now all of that marketing, all of that enthusiasm stops. The hot stove turns cold and we wait. And so I, I think momentum. And and you both can speak to this in understanding just the overall sports preferences that we have as a society, which evolve and change with time. And you wonder if on some level, the longer that this drags on, does baseball worry about losing its seat at the table of American sports consciousness? I I do think that during the wintertime, of course, now we've got the NFL's going, college football's going, hoops, hockey, we've got a lot happening right now in the sports world. I I always have thought that the Super Bowl is the line of demarcation. Once once the Lombardi Trophy is handed out, it's baseball season. And I think that might be the first time at which a fan looks up and says, wait a minute, have they still not figured this thing out yet? And what does it mean? I I really believe that baseball and the union have probably that grace period of, of a couple months to figure this thing out. And that if there's not an agreement by the time spring training is due to start, or at least when the Super Bowl is over, I do think that that's when a lot of fans would step back and really notice the absence of that buzz that always comes along with the start of spring training.
4: Hey, John, the optics are really not good from the players' side when they trot out Max Scherzer, uh, three years, one hundred and forty million dollars from the Mets at forty three point three a year. Um, will fans quickly take sides uh, with the owners or players? And do you think it's uh, heavily tilted towards the uh, the, uh, the owners this time around?
3: You know, Mike, it's a great question, because obviously on some level, uh, and maybe in speaking with more, more casual fans, even, even my own dad, as I was talking to my dad about everything, uh, it is incongruous to see all this money spent in the last month, uh, nearly $2 billion to players, and, and for the argument to then be made that free agency is broken. It It is. Almost by definition, as, as uh, one executive said to me, that is the, the definition of irony, uh, that, that players would be earning that type of salary and then have, uh, have the contention be that free agency is broken. It, it may perhaps be disproportionately rewarding the top players. Uh, one could argue that that's what free agency is supposed to do. The, the premium talent is, is getting paid, uh, and premium players should get paid. It's the question, I think, on both sides here, and I think ultimately what will bring this work stoppage to a close and get the game back on the field, is a more comprehensive way to handle the middle tier of players. And uh, MLB has notably proposed age-based free agency uh, at 29 and a half years of age, which I think would address meaningfully some of the concerns that players have about when players hit free agency at the age of 31, 32 – they have found very tepid markets because teams have a reams of analytical data that suggest that once a player is 33, 34, 35 years old, they're just simply not as productive as they used to be in many cases. Obviously, Max Scherzer at 37 is one notable exception with that $43 million per year salary that he's got coming. So it's a it's a different paradigm to look at things. I, I, I believe that when, when you consider you know, which side – will be taken by which fans, it's probably not for me to say, but I I, I do think there's plenty of information out there that suggests there's ample money being spent by the clubs, and if there's a more efficient way to allocate it, that then should be the conversation. And and in fact, uh, MLB has proposed increases to the minimum salary, which is important for the players with fewer than three years of service, and also a, a more objective arbitration process. That, I think, would, would reward players for what they're doing in the zero to six range, meaning zero years of service to six years of service before they become free agents. If, if free agency will become complicated, then at least let's, let's guarantee and, and provide better pay structures for those players before they hit free agency. And, in fact, um, at least one and perhaps more proposals by MLB would address precisely that.
2: Well, the thing about a work stoppage, and it doesn't make a difference whether you're talking here about MLB or you're talking about uh, native Detroiter here uh, and, and auto strike, it, you have to have the sympathy of the public in order for that strike to work. And you brought up an excellent point. I, You know, you got all these big money contracts being put out there, and I think the players union is doing it all wrong you should address more as the players' union, the minor league players that are owned by the the big teams, uh, they're making like piddly squat. And and if you talk about the life of what they go through, maybe the public would understand more about this work snobbage.
3: Well, Michael, it's a very fair point. Actually, there have been some uh, recent agreements uh, made uh, regarding the working conditions for minor league players, the support they get. Um, their living expenses, because you're right. Uh, salaries uh, at the minor league level are, are not sustainable uh, from a standpoint of uh, having a high quality of life, unless you are a player who, who has that large signing bonus to, to tide you over. If you look at it that way, uh, I think it's one of the great misconceptions about the sport that, uh, let's say, a player gets a million-dollar signing bonus. It sounds great, and it is. Don't get me wrong. But what that bonus does is it buys that player some time to develop in the minor leagues where they might be earning $15,000 a year, $20,000 a year. If you start to average that million dollars out over, over a six-year journey in the minor leagues, that's, that's what it's, it's buying you that time, if you will, to then hopefully get to fulfill your major league dream. If, if that doesn't happen, then that's, that's all you've got. And so I, I think that you're right, Michael, that you're, I think, really striking at one of the key issues – Unfortunately, from a, from a player's standpoint, at least this conversation about the negotiations, those players, by and large, are not members of the union. They are, they are minor league players. This is a, so th- their, their situation is handled quite separately from, from this negotiation. And, and from a meaningful standpoint, those conversations, while very important, are not necessarily germane to the negotiations going on right now on the new CBA, but Michael, you, you raised an excellent point. As, as you have all those years, I listened to you in our home state of Michigan. I, I, <laughs> you, you always make a lot of excellent points. That was another very, very good
4: one. Well, we had you up here in Boston for four years and a little work you did, at the Globe. Mike, I remember that well. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> um, so if we don't fans don't need to put their finger on the panic button until probably around February first. That we're all in agreement on that. What is the deal breaker here? Is it the arbitration lowering down to two years or free agency down to five years?
3: You know, Mike, it's a great question. I, I, I think for me it, it probably has to do with, with the free agency because, as, as MLB officials have pointed out, when you consider where the different proposals have come and, and what the union is hoping to achieve in this particular negotiation – there are three tenets of longstanding baseball collective bargaining that the union wants to change in one negotiation. It's, it's moving the free agency number, it's moving the arbitration number, and then also, as the commissioner said Thursday, taking $100 million out of revenue sharing, which obviously would compromise the ability of the smaller market clubs to compete and spend, whereas at the top end, uh, it would allow the likes of the Yankees, et cetera, have more resources to chase the biggest free agents, which certainly is 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 an understandable wish on the part of the players. The, the problem is that's three major transformative changes to, to try to tackle in the course of one negotiation. Whereas it, it's probably a little wiser and more of a, a normal course of business to attack those issues one at a time, and it's something of a sequential um, basis. It, it's very hard to to upend decades and really generations going back to the mid 1970s of of what labor relations in the sport have been based around all in one negotiation so mike i, I really think it's probably that free agent piece that's the most stand out as being an, an issue although the, the the revenue sharing is a big one too and and there are there have to be ways for the players to find a way to encourage the larger market teams to spend more by perhaps moving up the the competitive balance tax threshold on the positive side, the luxury tax threshold, if you will, move that number up as opposed to just flat-out removing money from revenue-sharing because that revenue-sharing money is what allows a team like the Tampa Bay Rays to put such an exciting product on the field and notably to retain one of their brilliant star players, Mike, who we saw play during the course of the division series at Fenway. That incredible player, Wander Franco, to be able to sign up long term. I'm not sure that deal happens without revenue sharing.
2: Well, John, we could go on for another two hours on this. And the only thing missing right now is a six pack of Corona and some pretzels. (laughs) uh, Thank you so much. John Morosi. He is the MLB Network Insider. And he just glad that you could come here and talk with us and, and on a very important topic. Thank you again, sir.
3: Uh, thank you so much what we'll be watching Michigan and Ohio State uh, carefully or Michigan and, and Iowa now coming up as Big Ten Championship game carefully this weekend well, I, may I wish Michigan as much luck as Harvard had against
2: Yale had a boy Johnny had a boy way to go Yeah, Big win there over there you go I, i'm <laughs> i'm glad there's no footage of me watching the Michigan <laughs> OSU game cuz it's like oh
0: look at that crazy man on the couch apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day
2: And let's continue our conversation on the MLB lockout and look at the legal side of the situation. We're joined by Martin Edel. He is the chair of Goulston and Stores Sports Law Practice and an adjunct instructor at Columbia Law School. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a serious topic here, but uh, hope we can sit down uh, and have some some relaxed conversation with it.
5: Uh, well, I hope so, too, and thank you for the opportunity of speaking with both of you.
2: I guess the first question, uh, the legal side, is something people don't realize, and I want to set this up, now that we have this lockout, it means the players cannot go to any of the facilities right now. And that brings up an interesting situation. I'm not talking about just the players you know, who talk to their coaches or whatever. But let's say, for instance, you have an injury that you suffered last season uh, and you were getting treatment at the facility, now all of a sudden you can't go. Uh, that's got to bring up a lot of problems here.
5: I'm sure that is correct. Um, as, but players also have other alternatives. They could go to um, other facilities that are not under the aegis of Major League Baseball for treatment. Um you know they can always sort out later who's responsible and who's going to pay, but I don't. I'm not sure that that would be the driving issue here for players.
4: Martin, it's uh, Mike Lynch up in Boston. Uh, a question was asked of uh, Commissioner Manfred on Thursday morning that there are some players that are seeking mental health treatment and therapy, and he was asked if that would cease as well as rehab for, for instance, a shoulder or a knee. What kind of legal complications could, could that uh, start up?
5: So that's a great question, Mike. That um, has lots of issues attached to it. One is, is there a continuing treatment uh, requirement, uh, which if Major League Baseball suddenly stops, they're going to be liable for any problems that result. There is also, apart from the legal issue, the public relations issue do you really want to tell a player that the player cannot seek mental health treatment simply because the collective bargaining agreement has expired without affording that player other opportunities uh i think that would be a nightmare uh for baseball
2: what is the biggest legal point that you see with this work stoppage
5: at least for now well you know it's funny let me just set it up if i may um unlike a strike, which is a work stoppage, here you have the owners stopping the work. So, it's a little bit of a nuanced answer to it. But as I understand the economic issues, and and there are some non-economic issues as well, but the principal economic issues are four, uh, as I understand it. First is, what is the path to free agency? Uh, should it be the six-year that currently exists, or should it be something less than that? Uh, second is, what should be the parameters of the luxury tax? Unlike uh, the other professional sports leagues, National Football League, National Basketball Association, and the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball does not have a salary cap on its own. It uses what is called a luxury tax. And there has been some back and forth. I don't know if there's been a lot of negotiation, but there's been back and forth as to whether the amount of the luxury tax is too high or too low, and whether there should be minimum amounts that teams have to pay in terms of salary. The third issue is whether or not there should be salary arbitration. Right now, that exists after three years for any player. The question is, should it go to an earlier period of time? And the fourth economic issue is one that the union has brought up, which is uh, that teams may be tanking uh, what goes on there to try to get more junior players in terms of signing rather than using veterans with their higher salaries. Uh, And that's of great concern because it affects the path to free agency, it affects the amount of luxury tax, and quite frankly, it affects the competitive nature of the teams uh, who may tank rather than win games. So those are the four economic issues that, I, as I understand, are in play right now.
4: Martin, uh, why would uh, baseball order the teams to take down images of players during this lockout? For instance, Bryce Harper was the MVP of the National League. There's a big banner at Citizens Bank Ballpark, and they were ordered to take it down, basically eliminating all name, image, and likeness. Would ownership gain an advantage by keeping uh, his image up on the ballpark?
5: To me, that can cut both ways, Mike. Um, by taking down the image, they're preventing Bryce Harper from realizing any... Uh, licensing fees or other types of revenues he may gain from uh, promoting his name, image, or likeness. Uh, but it also affects the team, which is trying to do that and ostensibly has a deal with Bryce Harper to uh, license his name, image, and likeness.
2: What I don't understand is the whole hang-up about sponsorships. What, I, I don't understand how that can be affected and how that is shut down.
5: That's another great question. Professional athletes have a limited life um, in the sense that they play, they can excel for a period of time, but eventually age creeps up and they're no longer as viable as stars or viable as professional athletes. So they seek to monetize uh, their rights as early as they can for as much as they can. Uh, and by telling sponsors, hey, you know, we're not going to permit the licensing to go forward, you're, do, you're taking a deep cut into a player's ability to monetize his name, image, and likeness. Uh, with the result that they're trying, you know, it's an economic tool to try to force the players to come back to the bargaining table on terms favorable to the owners.
4: Martin, uh, the free agency, I think, is probably the uh, number one sticking point here, the, uh, the six years or five. Should there be a work stoppage, uh, is there always a concession that time lost can be credited to a player? Uh, for instance, if he's hit five and a half years in and they don't start playing until August of next year?
5: That's going to be a subject of intense bargaining, uh, whether or not they should credit Uh, the player back. You'll remember back to 2015 with Chris Bryant. Mm, Yes. um, And, of course, the Cubs did not let Bryant go to the major leagues. I think it was until the second month of the season, and therefore they didn't under the existing rules. The Cubs did not have to credit Bryant with that particular year uh, as being a credit towards the free agency time period. Bryant arbitrated that issue and lost. So instead of being a six-year term, it became a seven-year term for Bryant. Um, and here, too, if if the work stoppage, well, the, the lockout continues into the year and then uh, there's no time made up, and that's not the subject of bargaining uh, that comes out favorable to the players, the players may lose some players' who would otherwise be eligible for the full year credit towards free agency may find that they're not getting that credit
2: baseball commissioner rob manfred said that he believes that an off-season is the best mechanism to protect the 2022 season and they hope that the lockout will jump start in the negotiations do you agree with that martin
5: no um a lockout is a very serious economic tactic it's perfectly permissible under the National Labor Relations Act, just like a strike is perfectly permissible under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, But you look at what happened. They had a seven-minute session. Uh, That didn't bode well for future discussions. And the question really becomes how interested is each party in coming back to the table and on what terms?
2: Yeah, that was Uh, supposed to be nine hours, and it wound up being just seven minutes.
5: Right, right. So as you probably know, pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report around February 15, and exhibition games are scheduled to commence February 26. Given the holiday schedule, that's really just around the corner. Will the parties come back to bargain in earnest? Uh, Will they be able to complete what are going to be complex negotiations before that time is really up in the air. Yes, there's an advantage to starting during the off season. That's probably one of the reasons that the collective bargaining agreement expired during the off season. But there's no guarantee that they'll be able to complete these complex negotiations in two and a half months with all the holidays in play.
4: Uh, Martin, uh, the commissioner said on Thursday that in 1994, baseball made a mistake by starting the season without a collective bargaining agreement, and he said, quote, we will not make that mistake again. Does that sound like something that is very inflexible to you?
5: Yes. Um, There are other leagues which start the season when they think they've made sufficient progress on a new collective bargaining agreement that they think they're going to bring it across the finish line, Uh, taking a hard line position saying we're not going to reopen our doors uh, and get rid of the lockout until we have a signed collective bargaining agreement sounds inflexible um, and I think is designed to send a very strong message to the players union uh, that you better become more flexible on your demands.
2: What's different to me when you talk about the four major food groups in sports, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, especially in the NBA, Adam Silver has what appears to be a great relationship with the union and the players. On the other side of the coin, Rob Manfred has, let's call it, uh, maybe uh, a strained relationship with the union, and I'll put it that way. Is that a fair assessment? And and what can both sides do here to try to change that?
5: So I, from everything I've read in the press, um, yes, I think that's a very fair assessment. And remember that uh, Rob Manfred's background is that he came to Major League Baseball and he was a principal negotiator of prior collective bargaining agreements for Major League Baseball. Uh, as commissioner now, He represents 30 owners, and he has to take into account not only what is in the best interest of the sport, but also what the 30 owners want. Uh, Historically, that's to be protected somewhat from their own greed. Hence, let's let's find mechanisms to reduce player salaries and player compensation, because otherwise we're going to be bidding against each other in an endless war. You know, we saw just before the lockout went into effect, Corey Seeger signed a contract with the Rangers for $325 million over 10 years. Uh, That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, left to their own devices, owners might continue to bid up salaries. Hence, they have a luxury tax, which in which the penalties become somewhat punitive if they exceed the amount of payroll. Uh, I think this past season it was $210 million in payroll, which is an enormous amount. Uh, but, you know, if you were paying one player $32.5 million a year, you'll, you're going to get to that $210 million before too long for your 25 or 40 players, depending on how it's calculated.
4: Martin, uh, the players do not get paid in the offseason. Um, presumably, they won't start getting a check until spring training starts. What, uh, what Talk about the collateral damage of a lockout between now and, say, the mythical date of February 15.
5: So, um, you know, all of a sudden, the savings that players have put aside for the offseason needs to be stretched into the exhibition season and possibly the regular season because there's no guarantee of a paycheck. The union may give them something towards it. Uh, For uh, big earners, that may not be as great a concern because they may have more of a nest egg. For junior players two, three, four years out who haven't had time to save a lot of money, uh, this is going to be a great concern to them? How are they going to pay their bills? Uh, uh, You know, Mike, I think when you were playing college football, uh, lots of professional team players had off-season jobs. Uh, That no longer exists because they have enough to carry them over and they're paid a sufficient amount. But suddenly, if that sufficient amount disappears they going to go off their training regimen. They're going to be then therefore come into spring training uh, flabbier, uh, out of shape. These are real concerns, and it will take them longer to get into shape as well. So these are some of the concerns uh, that players will face, and I, I think it will probably be stronger with those who, as I mentioned, who are two, three, and four years out who haven't had the time To save, haven't had the discipline to uh, develop into their sport into a full year activity with training.
2: How does this lockout affect the minor league players? Those are people I always want to look out for. Uh, Obviously, right now, not much because it's, you know, if this can get resolved in hopefully a, a few weeks, everything is good. But what if this goes on down the road? How will it affect the minor league players?
5: So that's a great question, and my simple answer is I am not sure. Um, It may be that the owners extend the lockout to the minor leagues as well. Uh, If they do, and there's going to be a lot of pressure on them to do that because they don't want the players who are the focus of the collective bargaining agreement, the major league baseball players, to use the minor leagues as a means to get into shape uh, and to be ready for the regular season because that would decrease the owner's economic powers uh, in the negotiations. So it's a real concern, um, and many minor league players get minimal salaries or per diems, uh, which makes it very difficult to continue in the sport if they're not. Uh, playing regularly.
4: Martin, as Chair of uh, Goldstein & Storrs Sports Law Practice, uh, looking through your lens here, where do you see the imbalance between both sides?
5: Uh, so, I mean, I think this really comes down to two issues. Uh, one being the owner's desire to Avoid paying players tremendous amounts once they're past their prime, as the owners would think, um, and the players' desire to make sure there's a path for younger players to get more of the pie and older players to receive their due, even if their skills are somewhat, somewhat, I emphasize, diminished over where they've been. So how does that work? Luxury tax. Um If you have a luxury tax for a team, you know, three years running, a team exceeds the luxury tax of $210 million, it's going to be hit with penalties. How is it going to? It's going to want the flexibility to reduce payroll there uh, in a means that preserves the competitiveness of the team uh, while it eliminates the uh, sanctions or penalties that exist. That may hurt veterans more than younger players. Uh, by contrast, teams may decide that they also don't want veterans and are willing. This is the tanking issue. Uh, they may want to bring up newer players from the minor leagues uh, at minimal or at the minimal the minimum salary, uh, save lots of money, and they'll put off for a couple of years being competitive. We've seen this in baseball. We've seen this in other sports. Uh, It's not something that fans enjoy. (laughs) They they want to go to the ballpark knowing their team is going to be competitive and have potentially a great game and a win. Uh, They don't want to go in thinking that their team is going, the home team is going to lose, and only by a miracle will it win. Uh, So, for the way I see it. The issue is going to be what is the salary range, what is the luxury tax range, can the two sides get together on that in a way that preserves the veterans' ability to play, uh, gives younger players an ability to play, and gives owners some relief from the onerous sanctions uh, and penalties that would exist under the current luxury tax
2: Sports lawyer Martin Edel, thank you so much, sir, for joining us uh, on a on a serious topic, and and your knowledge uh, is second to none in this field. Thank you again, sir. We really do
5: appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at big Bar Sports, And I'm Mike Lynch at Lynch WCVB. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate
5: Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more
0: larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each
5: week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire.
0: It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon, Inc.
5: From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon, Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.